It's a delight to be back with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. These are one of the days when you pray that the sermon turns out right. When you get a call at 8 o'clock in the morning to, and get the audible call to show up. So the book of Habakkuk is one of my favorite Old Testament books. And part of the reason for that is there is a, there's a passage in the book of Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 2.4, that is quoted in the New Testament a couple of times and, in fact, is quoted at the, one of the most critical uh, moments in the book of Romans. It is quoted in Romans 1, 16 and 17, which, if you know your history, is one of the passages that helped Martin Luther open up the gospel for the Protestant Reformation. In fact, that passage in Romans 1 comes from the book of Habakkuk. You could say the Protestant Reformation started because of the prophecy of Habakkuk in one way. I'm going to read from a section. uh, We're going to look at kind of the whole book. I'm going to read from Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then chapter 2, and then the end of chapter 3. Okay, so Habakkuk 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. If you'll turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, Habakkuk and God carry on an exchange there in chapter 1, and this is actually God's second response to Habakkuk. So you'll notice the beginning of verse 2 says, And the Lord answered me. This is God's word to him. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits for its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Then, if you go to the end of the book, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. He he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask at this time that your spirit would come and open our hearts and our minds to your word. 
We pray that this message and prophecy from Habakkuk would penetrate into our hearts so that you would actually do a work that transforms us and gets to the root issues in our lives so that we might faithfully follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There is something about death that causes people to back up and ask questions. My father died in 2007, and it was a shock to our family. It was a surprise to me. And most of 2007, it was early in 2007, January, and most of 2007 I spent trying to unpack that event and figure out what was the Lord doing in my life. And I'll never forget, through the course of the funeral, several family members, and and my father was a very good man. He was a deacon at the church I grew up in. He was always serving and helping people, although um, even though I knew he did this, it was astounding to me how many people at the funeral came up and said, I can't tell you what your dad meant to me. He helped me here. And it was over and over and over. And so the common response I heard from family members when they were being honest. And you know, at that moment, at a funeral, your, your honest, raw emotions tend to come out if you speak, <laughs> was, this isn't fair. My dad's name was Harold. This isn't fair. Harold shouldn't be dead. And I, I agreed with that. I couldn't understand why this was the case, that this would happen. My mother spent the next few years trying to figure out where her faith was after an event like that. The story of Habakkuk is very similar. There is an impending doom that is coming towards the nation in this prophecy. And it causes things to come out of Habakkuk that he probably didn't even realize were buried beneath the surface. And that's what happens in the midst of suffering. It's what happens in the midst of trials. It's what happens in the midst of the moment When we face death, things come out that we thought, that can't be what I actually believe. The book of Habakkuk illustrates that for us in a powerful way. They are lies that we believe. And we take them and we turn them into something that looks good. And they're even connected to things in Scripture. I'll give you another example of this. I was in my late teen years. And um, I was playing ball with a friend, and our baseball team had gone to the hospital, most of the guys on the team, to visit this friend whose mother was in the ICU. And I happened to be there when the doctor came out and told his dad that she probably wasn't going to make it. And the dad broke down crying, and one of the words that came out of his mouth was, this can't be right. She honored her father and mother. She can't die this quickly. Now, I, I heard it as a teenager, and even as a pastor, I, who knows what to say at those moments, right? But I remember that in my head because he expressed this notion that he thought the Scriptures promised that if his wife was faithful to her parents, she would live a long life. And how many times like that do we have things deeply rooted in us that we believe that come out in the midst of suffering. And they're normally lies. 
They're normally misplaced promises, misplaced expectations. One of the confusions he made at that time, and something I've reflected on a lot since then, is the difference between just promises in Scripture and Proverbs. Proverbs are wise sayings. Proverbs are uh, the kind of life you should live. It should be the case if you live this way. It's a word of wisdom. Promises are absolutely true no matter what. A proverb in the book of Proverbs or some of the Proverbs in Psalms will say this is ordinarily the case if you live this way. But it's not a promise. That's exactly why the book of Job's in here. I almost preached on Job this morning. That's exactly why the book of Job is right here in the midst of the wisdom literature. Because Job was a righteous man. And in the very beginning of the book of Job, he gets hit from all directions with tragedy and suffering and loss. And at the end of it, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the struggle there is that you have a good, righteous, upright person who's suffering, who's losing his family. And how do you make sense of that? Because he's living the way Psalms and Proverbs tell you to live. And so we have these assumptions we make on God. We turn statements of Scripture that are usually wise sayings into promises. Here's a clear promise. Jesus promises he will return. It's going to happen. He promises it will be the case. We don't know exactly how. We don't know all the details of it, although some people are more confident than others. But he promises this, and we can hold fast to that promise. Here's what he doesn't promise. He does not promise life is going to be fair. He does not promise life will be easy. He does not promise that you'll get a good job that you'll like. He does not promise you'll have a good family if you're obedient. He does not promise your marriage will work if you come to church. He does not promise that your marriage will meet your deepest needs. He does not promise to protect you from pain and suffering. Those are not promises. In fact, Jesus actually goes the other way and he says, when you follow me, pick up your cross and die. And in America, we've become very good at maneuvering that around and feeling good about what's happening in our life. Whenever you face anger or disappointment, if you're wanting to dig deep into what's in your heart, when you face anger or disappointment, pause And ask yourself, what's going on here? What did this event just trigger that I thought should have been differently? So Habakkuk struggles with this very thing. And so we're going to use Habakkuk to demonstrate how this is happening in his life and then hopefully see something of an answer here in this book. So Habakkuk starts off with a complaint. How long shall I cry to help and you will not hear? Verse 2 of chapter 1. Cry out to you violence and you're not saving. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law, which I've put my hope in, is paralyzed. And justice, which I also hoped in, never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Sounds very similar to a lot of stuff I hear on the radio these days about our country. There's a complaint about how bad things are and how wicked people are. 
And Habakkuk is crying out to God because this is not the way it's supposed to be. Justice dictates this should be different. So the Lord answers him. As is the case with the Lord, the answer is not what he wanted. I can't imagine a more difficult answer than what Habakkuk gets. And I would encourage you to let that sink in. God's answer to Habakkuk is devastating. Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. So God even knows it. He's like, you're not going to believe this when I tell you what I'm about to do. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, if you, wanna con- if you don't connect that nation, that's the Babylonians. That's the nation that took Israel into exile. This is a prophecy about the point at which a nation, the Babylonians, are going to come and devastate the nation, the Hebrew people, and take them into exile, destroy the temple and everything that they hold dear. And then the rest of God's answer is describing the Chaldeans as a bitter and hasty nation, verse 6, who march through the breadth of the earth. They seize dwellings that's not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. This was a military machine in the ancient world. No one stood in their way. And the description and the metaphors being used there in verses 8 through 11 are all about the military might and power of Babylon. Now this, uh, this doesn't set well with Habakkuk. He's God's prophet. It's not supposed to go this way. God, I was, I was complaining about, in my opinion, what, what he's complaining about in the first uh, four verses He's looking around at the nation, at the covenant people, the Hebrews, and saying, there's wicked people here and they're not supposed to be God. This is not supposed to be how your people behave. And God, instead of judging the wickedness around Habakkuk, actually sends someone from outside the country to judge them, the Babylonians. So now Habakkuk's second complaint, verse 12, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Now, I want you to stop there. Now, catch what he's doing. God, you're everlasting. You're holy. And what he's about to do in the rest of the complaint is draw on language from the covenant that God gave them, draw on promises that God gave them, and say, you can't do this because you promised something else. But I want you to mark or notice that sentence. Mark it if you mark your Bibles. The prophet says, we shall not die. Now, what's he doing right there? God just said he's sending the Babylonians. And Habakkuk, the prophet, says back to God, we can't die. There's only a few ways you can take that. In the most optimistic way, he's talking about future generations and ultimately Babylon won't destroy them. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, you can't do this to us. We're your people. Notice what he goes on to say. Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of, notice how he says this to God, verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent? When the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he. 
You see the language? The, the, the picture here is that the Babylonians are going to come marching on the land, and when they come, they're not going to come to Habakkuk and go, are you a faithful prophet? We won't kill you if you are. They don't care. When the Babylonians come, it's utter devastation. And Habakkuk realizes this is not the answer I was looking for. To give you a parallel of this, if you've ever looked around at the country, our country, and prayed, God, I don't understand why things are so bad, why there's wickedness. Why won't you do something about this? God's answer of bringing the Babylonians would be parallel to him answering your prayer and saying, I'm going to judge the nation and send Islam. And they're going to march through the land, and they're going to take your churches, and they're going to take your homes. That's the kind of answer God gives Habakkuk here. Kind of changes the tone of the book, doesn't it, when you look at it that way. And Habakkuk is astounded. Now, I want you to notice something he does. Notice there, the end of verse 13. Why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? Now notice, I'm going to have you compare this part of verse 13 and the term wicked and righteous with what Habakkuk said back in the beginning of the verse, uh, beginning of the chapter, when he said at the end of verse 4, for the wicked surround the righteous. Same words. Wicked and righteous. Now let's pause and think about this for a moment. This is so fundamental to the book because I do this and and so do you if we're honest. When he said wicked and righteous in verse 4, he's looking around at everybody else and he's going, they're all wicked and I'm the righteous person. I'm a prophet. I'm being faithful to God. And he was. And he's saying, they're not. So God, will you please do something about that? And the wicked, in verse 4, in my opinion, are his fellow Hebrews. Now, when you get to verse 13, and he says, Why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? Definitions have changed. Guess who the wicked are in verse 13 now? It's not the Hebrews. It's the Babylonians. The wicked are now the marching army who's coming on the land. Guess who the righteous are now in verse 13? It's the Hebrews. It's the covenant people. It's the people who are God's people. They're the same people that he called wicked back in the other verse. Notice what's going on with Habakkuk. There's an assumption here that I would call he's got a scale of righteousness. You ever function with this in your life? A scale of righteousness that puts people on a scale in order to put yourself on that scale so that you feel better about what you're doing or whatever is going on in your life. So at the beginning of the book, Habakkuk had a scale, and let's say it's 1 to 10. And on that scale, Habakkuk would say, well, God's somewhere at 10, right? He's perfect. Prophets are somewhere around 7, 8, maybe 9 if they're really good. These other wicked Hebrews, they're down around three or two. And so he's got a scale of righteousness. Who's doing better? But then God sends him this answer and it busts his scale. And instead of reconfiguring it the right way and putting all as sinners and God is holy, he redoes the scale and he pumps it up to 20. 
You say, okay, God's way up there now. Maybe I'm around 16, 17. The other wicked Hebrews, they're around 10. The Babylonians are way down at 2 now. You ever done that? You ever adjusted things in life so that you kept yourself up on the scale and you looked at somebody else and they were not? It's the fundamental issue in this book for Habakkuk. It's a lie, he believes, that righteousness comes from your good works. That righteousness comes from the things you do. That's not the gospel. That's why this passage we're about to look at is quoted in the New Testament. So Habakkuk's like, God, you can't do this. This can't be what you're doing. And now I want you to notice chapter 2, verse 1 is the end of Habakkuk's second complaint. And he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. Watch post and tower are military terms. Habakkuk the prophet has set himself up to contend with God to defend Israel, the Hebrews. And then he says, and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In other words, Habakkuk's getting ready to keep going with God because this is not right. Now comes God's second answer, and this is the portion that's quoted in the New Testament. So God says, write down this vision, make it plain on tablets. The language here is being used because it's, it's no longer just a prophecy coming out of Habakkuk's mouth, words that are being spoken, but it's a a prophecy that needs to be written down for future generations. And it's so important that it needs to be inscribed so that those in the future can see it, read it, and understand it. And, And the vision that's coming, God says, needs to wait for an appointed time. So once you write it down, it's going to be a while before the ultimate answer of this vision comes, but it will come. The end of verse 3 says. Now notice verse 4. This is the actual vision. This is the actual statement. There are two parts to it. The first part of verse 4 is not quoted in Romans 1, 16 and 17. The second part of verse 4 is quoted, the righteous shall live by faith. But notice the first part, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. The first part of the vision is about what's in your soul, what's in your heart. And God says it's puffed up. The word we use for that is pride, arrogance. Spiritual people don't like those terms. It's the the root of the seven deadly sins in the Christian tradition. God says our soul is puffed up. It's not upright in itself. Why? Because we do what Habakkuk did. We put everybody on this scale. And we try to keep ourselves up here to feel good about ourselves. And the whole time we do that, we miss the gospel. We miss the good news. Because you know how exhausting it is to try to stay up on that scale. When you don't pray in the morning. When you get angry on the way to church. And you're like, why in the world did that car have to pull out in front of me on the way to church? I'm trying to be spiritual today. (laughs) Right? Those things happen. And then you're like, 
And then you have to reconfigure it in your mind to make yourself feel good to enter into worship and think that you're okay. That's not the gospel. That's not good news. That's exhausting. The gospel is that the righteous, verse 4, live by faith. That's really good news. That is the kind of news you need when your morning doesn't go well. That's the kind of good news you need when at the conclusion of this sermon, we're going to transition into communion and none of us are worthy to come to that. But because of Jesus, you're called to come and share at that meal, no matter what, if you have faith. Because your righteousness doesn't depend on what you did. It depends on Jesus. That's the essence of the gospel that Luther discovered. When Luther was going through Romans and lecturing on Romans in in the 1500s and it dawned on him what was happening, it was this passage in Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to, to the Greek. And what is the gospel? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The Christian life is about constantly living by faith and looking to Jesus who died for all your sins, not part of them. There's not one that's going to trap you. He died for all of them, and he granted you his righteousness. That's why the gospel, some people call it the great exchange. Justification by faith alone is what Luther wrote about. And the great exchange is this. When he dies on the cross, he takes your sin and he nails it to the cross on him. And in exchange for your sin, he gives you his perfect, righteous life. Every moment where he obeyed his father, every moment where he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, every moment where he loved his neighbor as himself, all those acts of righteousness that he was perfectly right in doing, he grants to you. So that when you stand before God, you stand as a son and daughter. That's good news. And that'll change how you live. It changed Habakkuk. Because I think Habakkuk got it. There's so much more here in the message that, uh, in the book that I'd like to look at. But let's, let's go to the very end to wrap this up. Chapter 3, verse 17. The transformation of Habakkuk in this book is astounding. He goes from someone at the beginning of the book who's saying... The law's not strong enough. Justice is paralyzed. The wicked, they're not being judged. To hearing this message and being struck to his core and hearing the gospel in chapter 2, verse 4, that he needs to live by faith. So his concluding passage is is a well-known and well-quoted passage in, in Scripture. And it's beautiful. But we quote it without realizing what it means. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yield no food. 
The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now, that's beautiful and poetic. But you know what it's saying, right? There's no fig tree. There's no fruit on the vines. There's no olive. There's no food being yielded in the fields. The flock is gone. The herd is gone. Those six things being described there are utter devastations. It's a picture of the marching of the Babylonians on the land. And we know from history that's exactly what happened. They scorched it. They destroyed it. Some they took into exile. Many, many they killed. And the, 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 the picture here in verse 17 is a picture of complete loss. Even though all this might happen, Habakkuk says, verse 18, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The transformation of his faith from someone who's complaining about wickedness to now saying, no matter what comes my way, God is enough. God the Lord is my strength. That's the journey of faith that's your own. And even though there may not be a situation where Babylonians come marching on the land, you face all kinds of situations where you die, where you bear a cross, where the world doesn't make sense, where life doesn't make sense. And instead of trying to work it out on your own by, by pretending that you're super righteous or trying to work it out on your own by going to another idol and latching on to something that's a false god, trust in whatever it is the Lord's doing in your life right now. I believe so deeply in the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, that it's not just that we say all things work together for good. They do. But by that, it means the number of people who are sitting here in this congregation today, each of you have something different going on in your life right now. You're trying to decide something. You're facing something. Things may be going fairly easy. I don't know. But whatever it is that you're going through right now is given to you by God for the deepest moment of growth you need right now. And he calls you to follow him through it and not to run away from it, but to trust him because he knows what he's doing in the midst of your life. And if you trust Christ, that's really good news. My prayer is that all of you Embrace the gospel of Christ, the good news that God loves you and he is guiding you through this course of your life. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take these words and use them to give us strength to face the journey that we're on. We pray that whatever it is that we're coming across in the course of our life, that you would guide us and direct us. We pray, Father, as we face our trials like Habakkuk, that we will not look at others and judge them, that we will not be critical, that we will not be negative in those things, but that we will turn to you. And even though the fig tree might not blossom and there might not be fruit on the vines, even though the produce of the olive might fail in the course of our life and our fields yield no food, we will rejoice in you. We ask that your spirit would come 
to provide for us the grace that we need to do just that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.